0: Welcome to The Intersection, a podcast on spirituality and social justice, with three women of different ages who live in three different states with three different
1: skin colors. Grounded in spirituality and love, we strive to think, speak, and behave in ways that will bring about a better world for all people. We are committed to admitting mistakes and missteps, excited to grow, and willing to make that growth public. We are so grateful that you've clicked play.
0: Thank you for your willingness to to grow with us. Hey, everyone. So we're excited to share this episode with you. The episode is on what equity is and how we get there. And this episode was actually not recorded for The Intersection. It was recorded for Jamila's What's Up Wednesdays. She does a whole lot of community work, community advocacy work, and education in particular. And you are going to hear her voice. You'll hear my voice. And you will hear two other voices today, John Marshall and Ernesto Querejero. And it's an exciting conversation. Unfortunately, Amanda is not inside this conversation. I feel like Amanda would have had a lot to say in this conversation as well. But this is a great kind of step into really kind of unpacking the word equity. I know the word equity has been weaponized recently in our news and our media. So this episode kind of unpacks what equity really means, what people are after when they're really talking about equity. And we hope you enjoy and we hope to hear from you.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. There are comments if you guys want to come in. Hi, Jordan. So, everyone, we are here to discuss equity, what it is, and how do we get there, Today we are very blessed to have Dr. John Marshall with us, who is a
0: DEI
1: officer at Jefferson County in Kentucky. And we also have King here, who is a DEI facilitator and instructor. Is that right? Okay, something like that. And we also have Trusty, Trusty still here, so I'll and so we're gonna have this conversation. So what I've asked is that We first talk about what is our definition of equity. I think that's the first thing to start. So who wants to go first with what they think equity is?
2: Can I go first? Because I think they're more professionally trained in this particular definition than me. I've always thought of equity just really sitting on two tenets. really. One of them is fairness, that everybody gets treated fairly. And to me, the other one is inclusion. That everyone can be included and have some kind of access to whatever is being offered everywhere. And as a public institution, I generally think that um, school systems have the obligation to be able to provide those two things at a minimum. That's kind of how I look at it, I try to think of it in a big picture as those two tenants. If I believe it can be fair, and if I can include everybody, I think it's the start of an equitable idea. That's kind of how I think about it. And I know there's all kinds of details. Is it an equitable practice? Is it equitable policy? Is it equitable teaching? You can apply that to many, many things, but I think generally speaking to me, it's really those two things.
0: I'll jump in and build off of that. When I think about equity, I think in education in particular, I think about every single student getting what they need to realize their full potential every single day. So that's academic potential. That's personal potential. That is like what they're doing in their lives. That's what they're doing in their school. Every single student getting what they need in order to maximize the person that they want to become and step into the person who they want to become.
3: And I guess bringing that full circle, when we think of equity and we talk about it specifically in an educational arena, we have to be very clear that the definitions just given are absolutely right on point. But the difficulty of equity is the reallocation of funds and things that are in place. The reason educational equity is so difficult, although the definition is very clear, and the professionals on here, uh, my brother and sister on here that just said what it is is accurate. We have to remember that reallocating or redistributing or being fair is something that is very difficult to do in an institution that wasn't designed to be fair. So that is absolutely what equity is. But to the point we talk about it, every school district has some statement of equity now. But when it comes to the nuts and bolts of literally reallocating and let's call it what it is, that very well may mean you're taking or you're redistributing things that John once had and now giving them to Ernesto. Doesn't mean Ernesto's going to be any less. Doesn't mean Ernesto's going to struggle. It just means that distribution was never given equitably. And to go back and do that is something that we must do.
1: That's interesting because what that makes me think about is the fact of the system not necessarily being met from everyone. And when you have to reallocate funds or resources, people get really pissed not understanding that the foundation was never even to begin with. So, Dr. Marshall, could you please tell us a little bit about your county and some of the work that you're doing and the effects you have had, you have seen, results you have seen?
3: Sure. John David Marshall, Chief Equity Officer, Jefferson County Public Schools. We are going on our fifth or sixth year of a racial equity policy and that racial equity policy calls for and addresses the racial inequities that have happened in Louisville, Kentucky, for a long, 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 long time since its inception. Some of the things, let me kind of backward step this. Literacy and numeracy is not moving forward fast enough. And so that means that there is still this gap, if you call it a gap. However, there are things in place that have really improved. Our suspensions are still disproportionate, but they are going down. We're hiring, even with a teacher shortage, we are improving or increasing the number of minority teachers coming into the fold. And I will tell you, Ann Arbor, a lot of times when we Ask the young brothers and sisters that are coming into JCPS, while they're coming, they literally say, you guys have a policy that really sounds like something I want to be a part of. Increase in access to gifted and talented is something that we've definitely also seen. And the cabinet level where I sit, under the leadership of Dr. Polio and this board, there was a time on the cabinet where I was the only black person in the room. And now that there are some other people of color sitting in the room. We have also increased the spending my division in and of itself gets at minimum four million dollars alone just for racial equity that's my division and uh four million dollars in a public school is a a lot but it's no way near enough so those are just a few things that we could unpack for hours because there's a lot of good things going on in the district but i always don't want us to get caught up in the fact that at the end of the day it's about literacy it's about schools and it's about kids being able to compete and we still have work to do in our literacy and numeracy area of the school part but we're putting some things in place the cogs are in place to start moving that work forward
1: so i remember when i was doing the research and it starts sounds like you guys started this process in eight, 1984 85 well and you said you came into your position in 2012 when did things start really pushing forward and what is it that you did to make things really to enable things to push forward
3: Historically, this division used to be called Diversity, Equity, and Poverty Programs. And it was actually put in place as we merged city with county. Translation, as we merged the population of color with rural community or with not population of color. So they needed a liaison somewhere at central office to kind of work with schools and community to move that forward. That was in the 80s. You move forward to John Marshall four or five predecessors later, and we are now pulling in racial equity policies. How we got to this point is using the data to not just report out. I always say, reporting out is not accountability. Saying that we have uh, horrible test scores or saying that we are suspending too much and being transparent is one thing, but being responsive to the transparency is real transparency. So we get to this point and it is my role or it is my obligation, professionally and personally, to really start addressing what is going on and that is the things that have not been put in place, trying to get those in place. I've been here since 2012, we've been doing the racial equity policy for about five years now and is literally to address the ABCs and one, two, threes of school, understanding that there's other systemic inequities that impact that.
2: I have a question about the policy itself and how it was sure. crafted. Can you talk sure. a little bit about the process of getting to the policy making and its approval and its adopting a little bit? Because I think that's the part where districts and attitudes and biases stumble a little bit. Everybody says they want to do the work, but when it comes time to sit at the table and to really make some tough choices, not everyone's on the same page. So yeah. did you bring out someone from the outside to help guide you? Did you hire an outside third party to help you establish his, like protocols to get it done? Or was it just open conversation? If you could talk about a little bit of it,
3: that'd be great. Sure. So there was no real outside person pulling this together. We wanted to make sure the community had the will to do it and understanding the intimacy of all public schools in the cities in which they're in, we needed to make sure that it was owned by the school system. And we needed to make sure that what we used for the data, what we used to draw the policy, draft the policy was used on data. To go forward first, I mean, to start forward, I wanna say the first thing I did when I got here, when I got to this position, was create an equity scorecard. An equity scorecard that intersected race and poverty. Why? Because I wanted to make sure we understood stuff we already know, When you control for poverty, there is still a gap between students of color and white students. So as we must address poverty, we must understand that there is something inherently entrenched and inoculated in the system that is actually, lack of a better word, beating poverty in this thing called the gap. So I wanted to create this equity scorecard that showed with literacy, culture and climate behavior and uh, college readiness these gaps in the entire district and we had community conversations about it, and we brought community in to be as transparent as we could be to talk about our inequities and present it. Leveraging the equity scorecard and leveraging people like Jamila James and others that then from the outside in started raising accountability, whooping and hollering, demanding this is what we've been saying, making sure this is necessary, that then gave John the ability to start putting things in place. An equity symposium, an equity scorecard, an equity team, I started off with four people in my division. Now I leave 44 people. And it all came from outside in. Let me be very clear. It all came from the Jamilas and the Carolins and the Ernestos from the outside in saying, we need to get behind this work and really push forward. So now let me get to the policy. And I was kind of sharing with you all, and I have it here. I was kind of sharing with you all what this policy is. It is a holistic policy. What we could have done and what districts are doing, and do not get me wrong, we must address this. What we could have done is created an equity policy with no resistance. We wanted to create a racial equity policy and zero in on the racial racism of our school system. So in doing that, we did not just want to put something in the paper. We wanted to systematize it. And again, I was telling Ms. James here that we were also making sure that it didn't just come from Olympus. The chiefs yelling down at the schools, everybody is accountable. So we put some things in place with central office commitment, academics, curriculum overhaul, diversity and hiring. We put these tenets in place and then distributed accountability and metrics for every facet of the district. And the chief academic officer and others are held accountable for doing that. Was there resistance, Ernesto? Hell yeah. There was a lot of resistance. Why? Like I said, because we're talking about racial equity because we're talking about something that the school system wasn't designed to really address and the curriculum in and of itself, if you talk to any child, or if you talk to anyone that understands what curriculum does, is doing what it's exactly designed to do. It's uplifting some and demeaning others. So we really started challenging that and really pushing back Ms. James on the fact that we knew the curriculum that we are designing was causing a superiority complex in some and an inferiority complex in others. And to be more clear, a superiority complex in whites in an inferiority complex than anybody else. So we wanted to address that because it only makes sense that the majority of our students look like me. However, the curriculum was beating down students that look like me. So we're starting to address those things slowly but surely and put some systems in place. I do not know how much time I have, so I just want to answer quick, Ernesto, and then dig in. But the racial equity policy was some of the best work I've ever done, but it did come with resistance. It did come with thousand open records requests. It did come with you should be ashamed of yourself to even say school systems are like this it did come with the superintendent that have to stand up and say we have done racist things and i'll be honest with you i don't care who your superintendent is and i don't care how great your equity officer is if your superintendent is not doing it it's very good it's going to be very hard to move the work forward
0: i have, I have a question <laughs> <laughs> i have a question on that one because i hear you when you're saying like there was resistance but i'm like curious how you navigated that resistance like how'd you meet okay.
1: it
3: Yeah. So me, I'm kind of a come through the front door. I'm gonna keep going. Stop me if you can. So there's a couple of things. It's white noise, right? It's like CRT in public schools. It's the white noise that you have to block out, but it's also the level of transparency. You have an issue with what I'm saying. Bring your best argument. I bring my best argument and let's do it. But at the end of the day, I'm going to default to what the data says and what we know to be fact. So that's kind of how we did it because there's a lot of ways to get distracted. John, they're open record and requesting everything you and Ms. James have been emailing. John, they're open record requesting this. John, they're thinking A, B, C, and D, or John, you're being divisive. The equity officer, if he or she has worked his weight, has to know where he or she stands personally, professionally, and politically in this work. And so you have to really kind of prioritize, do I engage with this person that's just trying to make noise? Do I engage with this community member that really wants to know better? Regardless of whether I engage or not, what I am going to do is try to improve outcomes for students. But the resistance, I mean, gosh, <laughs> the resistance is real, literally, from having to get police escorts to certain places to, like I said, the propaganda of all four of us are out here spreading deceitful stuff and making the nation worse.
1: I think I find this very interesting. In a sense that I feel like you have to do this work. You have to be one of those front door people and kind of go for it and be able to make sure that it's data driven and making sure that you're courageous enough to do it. Because any type of change is uncomfortable. Any type of change is difficult, especially when you're trying to have people renew their minds about things they always thought. Things that's just to make them feel uncomfortable or make them feel bad about themselves, messes with their yeah. egos. So you have to be a strong type of person to be able to push forward to it. And for me, it's something that I really want to push for because it's best for our babies. It's just best for them overall as people helping them be the best that they can.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Marshall, can I just ask one clarifying question? Who was the equity scar card for? Was it for everybody? Was it for school cultures? Was it for individuals or groups? And were these filled out by themselves or were they filled out by
3: somebody else? Thanks. So good question. Our data team and Dr. Judy Vanderhaar, who is not in the district anymore, our data team, I met with the data team and told them what I wanted to do. They created the data. The first equity scorecard was district-wide now moving forward you can go to any school in jefferson county go to their website and see their equity scorecard and guess what it is outward facing so Grandma and them can see it too that in and of itself raises accountability and it's not put in educational language so Grandma and them can see the scorecard but the first one was district-wide big community pulled together all walks of life coming in and the district is showing where we are and where we are not then as iterations kept going We made it outward facing for every school. Every school now using equity scorecard has to have a professional development plan and a behavior plan based on their racial equity scorecard. So in response to that. Now, again, this all sounds good. But let me tell you why John Marshall is still mad as hell about it, because we haven't gotten literacy and numeracy together yet, but we're getting there. But this raised accountability in a system that's over 100 years old, it's going to take a while to do that, but that's where we are. So it started as a big one or not, big district-wide one, and it's now been brought down to each school where each principal should have the ability and authority to talk to it with authority and hold accountability to themselves in their school.
1: That's really important. I think that to be able to have a transparent, real look at our community as a whole, our district as a whole, so we can see where our starting point is and go from there because if you're not willing to take a real solid honest look at these things then you can't really solve it or even know where you need to solve so before we go further in our conversation i want to mention that even though right now we're talking about racial equity equity isn't just about racial things it's about people with disabilities it's about the lgbtq community Community, it's about it just inclusiveness and making sure that we're taking care of everybody, that everybody has an opportunity to thrive as much as possible. So, I just want to throw it out there because someone mentioned, and it is true that often when people talk about equity, it's just on a racial level, yeah. but it's more than just racial. All of us, it's about respecting our humanity more than anything else. Absolutely. So Carol, do you have anything to add about your experience because you go around the country and you do the professional development and you're helping the teachers do things. Can you talk a little bit about stuff that you do?
0: Yeah, I mean, this conversation is so interesting, because something that I'm thinking about as I'm listening to Dr. Marshall is like, that when we're working on equity, it has to go both ways, we have to like, have policies in place to allow equity to emerge. And we also have to be working from the ground up and figuring out like, how do we make equity bloom from the bottom up. So I work primarily with teachers and some school leaders, and then I still try to make my way in the classroom. Like I still try to get, I'm working with a physics teacher on a little project right now because I think it's really important to like stay grounded inside the classroom and the experience of teachers and students who are in the classrooms right now. And I think that sometimes it gets really easy to forget. When I first left the classroom, I was like, I need a sub, I need a substitute because I need to remember what's happening in the classroom every single day. I think that this conversation is interesting to me on a lot of levels. And I think I just want to contextualize that. I think we've surfaced a lot more of the inequities during the pandemic. So we have now when we send students home, like you start to figure out like who has computers, who has access to spaces that they can be studying and doing their homework, who has access to quiet when they're trying to get something done for a project. And I think that something that I am finding myself thinking about a lot is like now that most of us are back in classrooms and back in real life instruction, like what can we learn from what we witnessed during the pandemic and what we were a part of in terms of where inequities lie? And how can we address that both like in each individual classroom, teacher and student, and then policy-wise. How can we learn from what we witnessed and make some improvements for students right now? I think something that I think about a lot in talking to teachers is a lot of times we're like trying to go back to what it was before, like before the pandemic. And really there's like an amazing opportunity to kind of learn from that and figure out how we can transform our classroom practices in our schools. For the better from this point forward. And I think that is related to something Dr. Marshall said about our systems are like so old and like these inequities were baked into the systems to begin with. And so it really takes kind of a lifting, like a rooting up, like a taking from the bottom and seeing like, how do we restructure this? How do we look at this from different angles in order to get to the place where we are seeing more equitable outcomes, I think too, like even when we're talking about equity, I don't think we ever really arrive all the way, right? Like equity feels like a journey process, like every day, every moment, thinking about how I am looking with an eye for equity, I'm teaching and designing with an eye for equity. I'm really kind of looking at every single student in my classroom and also I'm honoring myself. Like I'm also creating space for me to be in that classroom too. So I think those are just like some of the thoughts that I'm thinking right now that just like across the nation, like we have, there's like that little metaphor of the pandemic, like we're not all in the same boat, but we're experiencing the same storm in like different kinds of boats. And it's like, how do we learn from the storm and all of the different boats that people were in and try to get as many of us in boats that will allow us to not just survive, but to thrive? Because... We don't want our students to only survive their educational experiences. We want our students to thrive inside their educational experiences and enter a world from a place of fullness and not from a place of lack.
1: So I have a question for you, you know, as we're talking about equity, we know that you're going to have to have policy about equity to get equity actually working. But how difficult is it for teachers to apply equity in class? Like, what is the paradigm shift they have to do?
0: I think that there's a lot of mindset shifts that have to happen. Like just what's valuable, what's important, and really kind of thinking about that critically when you're approaching instruction, when you're approaching even just your presence inside a classroom. I think too, I mean, just personal stories. I mean, I've been told I was a failure of a teacher for teaching too many books by people of color. Like there are resistance, like resistance that comes in. And so what a big thing I think about is like, Teachers have to, in addition to this mindset work, have to figure out their own emotional regulation because resistance does come. And how do you figure out how to face that resistance and how not to back down or cower from it, but how to like meet comments like that, like comments that the ones Dr. Marshall was sharing too about the resistance that he faces from the policy angle. How do we figure out how to be present and not be afraid or back down just because something is said or something is written that is in resistance to what it is that we're aiming for. I think that one, the mindset work to feel like what's valuable to emotional regulation to be like, I'm strong enough and I know what I'm after and I know why I'm after it. And I'm not going to let one mean comment or like a troll, like make me back down from what it is that I'm trying to go for here. And then I think the third thing is like collaboration with others and continuous learning. Because it's not like we, again, with the journey thing, like we don't ever arrive all the way. Like this is a process. Like we're continuing to figure it out, we're continuing to figure out how to be more equitable we're continuing to figure out places that maybe we are not and i know that you named some things right now about like it's not just racial equity like it's LGBTQI issues and it's disability it's all of these things and sometimes we think it, we have to pull back and go like there might be things that we're not naming there and that's part of the equity journey too is to figure out like where are the gaps and how we're addressing and really serving our students where are the gaps and how do we fill them That to me, those kinds of like emotional regulation of the teacher, mindset work, and continuous learning and collaboration with others, I think is like really important to getting to more equitable outcomes.
2: One thing I often find in a district where, and I know that Jeff, that your district, Dr. Marshall is huge. It's like almost 100,000 students. In our public school, somewhere around 18,000 students. So it's not as wide and vast, but the range is still there. And so something I think about equitability in the classroom, sometimes I think that equity work actually has to go into the homes a little bit more because I do find I know we've all taught before. And oftentimes when we're teaching, sometimes the impediment is actually coming out of the house or not getting the right kind of support to help the student feel successful. So sometimes I feel like in our community, children and kids would be a lot more are a lot more receptive to equitable practices and equitable things to do. But I find it's sometimes that resistance for change, that's really it. And to get to your point about the COVID issue, I do sense that people want to go back to quote unquote normal times pre-COVID. And even on your analogy, some people are still out in that storm that you're talking about. Some people have come back from the store, they've been able to navigate their ship and it feels like the water is calming. But for so many other people, it's not calm at all. It's still raging. And that's the difference that it's hard for people to see because for them, the water still all calm. But for so many others, it's not. And when you don't have something in place to account for them, that's when they inequities can continue to grow. And so that's kind of where my thoughts are around families who want to return to the pre COVID normal times, some of them are there already. And so for them, the change of thinking doesn't really make much sense because they want to go back to the comfortable routine of the pre COVID times.
0: That's so true. That's so true. And it's like, how do you get those people who are like, well, it's already normal to like get on board with figuring out like, no, we have to make shifts for all of us to be able to experience
1: that. But see, this is the thing about this. And I know that this is more of a personal interrelationship thing, but we just went through a pandemic that only happened a hundred years. We just went through a pandemic where thousands of people, millions of people worldwide died. Let's just take a second and sit with that life has changed things are not the same they are not going to be the same as you said before the pandemic really opened up a lot of people's eyes to all the deficits and strengths that we have as a community to try to go back to pre-pandemic is kind of like to put your head in the sand and some people will but It takes us, people who recognize this and understand this and try to get healing for all our babies to be able to be strong enough to take on this challenge despite the fact that it's comfortable. And it's up for us to so combat the individualism type of idea of America and recognize that in Ann Arbor, we are a community. And as a community, we have to take care of each other. And that is why we're doing these things. This is why we have to talk about equity. That's why we have to talk about healing. That's why we have to try to take care of because the pandemic did happen. You have something to say, Dr. Marshall?
3: Yes. To everyone's point, I think when we start talking about equity and equity policies and the difficulty that we all have faced and will continue to face pandemic or not, is there's a couple of things that cause institutions to struggle, especially sticking with things that benefit them, political capturing, which we see daily all the time. And we have a school system and I'm not talking about Louisville. I'm talking about Maine to Hawaii that aims to fix the oppressed as far as opposed to the oppressor. And we always have conversations around, Fixing the oppressed, but not addressing the system that addresses the oppressor. Example, when we talk about equity, and I want you all to hear me, when we talk about equity and we talk about mental health and Ann Arbor landing $2 million worth of mental health for our students, but we don't have Ann Arbor talking about the things that are causing children to be mentally ill, we're just dealing with one part of it. We're not addressing the system. We're saying that Carolyn and Ernesto and John and Jamila are in need of mental health but we're not saying the system is making them sick so we have to make sure when we talk about aims to fix the oppressed and not the oppressor that's what school systems do lack of oversight and support there's a lack of oversight in this equity work and we have to make sure that we don't have just equity policy written with no support for teachers that have never been expected to do this and then left for interpretation what the hell does it mean to teach in an urban district and flip the curriculum and make it Afrocentric, culturally responsive, whatever you want it to be. Those four things are the reason why it's so hard for this institution and any institution to change because of that. But the big one is aims to fix the oppressor, not the oppressor. I am very pleased that the focus we have on mental health for our students, but I am displeased with the fact that we are not saying the mentality of adults that are making our students mentally ill is not being addressed in the systems in which we're creating even in education.
1: So how would you think that that should be addressed? What type of things do you think should be done?
3: In its purest and simplest form, and this is gonna sound so simple, our job is to teach. And if we teach correctly, you will see disproportionality go down. If we teach correctly, you will see attendance go up. If we teach holistically and culturally responsibly, we will see mental illness come down because again, inferiority complex, superiority complex. When we talk about equity, sometimes we also, lack of interpretation, think we're just talking about people of color like on the screen. White people need equity too. So there might be some room for some deflation of arrogance and some inflation of arrogance for some other ones. Our acceptance, if if that's a a feel good word. But it sounds simple when I say, should we get curriculum and pedagogy correct? The other things that we are saying that we know are plaguing our public schools and are plaguing the concrete in the cities, fix themselves because we have done this part right
1: i believe that it's like if you take care of the most vulnerable that everything else kind of falls into place you have to get your foundation strong so and already like you said throughout the entire country that we need to fix the crack in our foundations because they right. were built with cracks on purpose so we right. need to recognize that that there see the cracks actually be willing to do something about it
3: and king i know as you go around and do pds etc the narrative will always start with these children are so troubled and you'll be so pleased to hear that we've just done this, this and this for mental health and we should be. But I guarantee you if you say, so what's the follow up question for the systemic impact on the mental illness of our children? What are we doing for the system that's creating it? They think literally just putting more mental health counselors in there and having five minutes to talk to a kid when that kid needs five hours a day and we're still not addressing voter fraud, voter suppression, poverty, hunger, anything else, it's a problem. We're actually teaching kids not to cope as opposed to overcome. I mean, we're teaching kids to cope as opposed to overcome.
0: Absolutely. I think to add to that conversation, well, one point I'm thinking about is like school can be either a modality that leads to social reproduction, like reproducing our same society over and over again, or it could lead to social transformation and transforming our society. I think the challenge in what you're presenting as the solution to just teach is that so many of us didn't get the accurate education to begin with. And so like even something like I was talking to some coworkers about this, like a couple months ago, like I grew up like one of the first computer games I ever played was the Oregon trail. Did I learn anything about indigenous people (laughs) in the Oregon trail? I didn't learn anything. And it was gamified for me to like want to go get gold and to like kill the (laughs) Buffalo and to like have fun doing it. And then I have these memories of like being a little kid with like, feathers and stuff and other people Mm -hmm. having like pilgrim uniforms. And that's like how we studied Thanksgiving or whatever. And those kinds of things that were in our education are like continuing to perpetuate themselves today because it's the education so many of us got. And it takes work for us to unlearn those things and Mm -hmm. question those things and go, that's kind of messed up. Like, how come I don't know the name of the people who lived on this land to begin with? Like, how come that information was withheld from me? How come, like, books talk about the civil rights? the civil war as like a argument over states rights. Like, mm-hmm. how come? And so many of us have education that was not like the full picture or an accurate mm-hmm. picture an education that glorified the oppressor and manifest destiny. Right. And so yeah. the challenge in like at what I agree, I think that is what we have to do. We have to teach the challenge in that is like so many of us never got that education to begin with.
3: That's going to always be the biggest problem. Quick story of mine, my middle school that I went to, Thomas Jefferson Middle School, we have Thomas Jefferson Day. My ignorant self walking around here, rah-rah Thomas Jefferson, I tuck my little pants and my socks, looked like I had the little hats on, and just, I didn't know Thomas Jefferson did all those other things that weren't taught. We just lifted him up as this great, I mean, the whole community shuts down, falls into this school to celebrate Thomas Jefferson, and never when we taught, when I was taught him, Did I know the other things that he did that were absolutely horrendous and needed to be discussed as well? So then I could understand, uh, have a better understanding of what he did or did not do and then decide on my opinion of that man.
2: What I will say about what you said, Carol, to me is this. It really speaks to who gets to write the history and who gets to publish the books. And that's really the systemic problem that exists. If I don't see a book written by someone different or give the opportunity for a different kind of person to write that history, it will be very difficult to change because that's the only resource that's even purchasable. In some instances, that's very, very difficult to work. And I know when people try to bring a different kind of perspective to those kinds of histories, the two examples being very good ones, they're even uncomfortable saying that stuff out loud. Their mentality is that I'm teaching a wrong or a difficult or a controversial history. It's not controversial. It's just got some different facts and perhaps is a little more accurate.
1: So this is the thing about that. Number one, as far as the curriculum and it's all being written by the same type of people. So this is true. But if you're actively searching for anti-racist curriculum, if you have a commitment, the two, the information is available, especially over the last two years. When I took that conference, I met people that talked that did curriculum. So you just have to again, where there's will, there's a way. You can get that, and then when you talk about the uncomfortableness of talking about the history. So first off, it shows proves to our children that people are human, people make mistakes, and this is what happened. It's uncomfortable, but it's the truth, and. Transparency is important and we can't learn from our mistakes if you always try to hide them. And that's one of the problems that we have here in this country as a whole, trying to hide the facts of it. So we can't heal from it. We can't learn from it. And like I said, where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, to be uncomfortable. I think that it may be uncomfortable for like a generation or something. But the more we do it, the better it gets because like you said, it's a transformation. We already know that what we have right now is not working for everyone. So we need to do something about it. It's as simple as that. We need to do something about it and be willing to be uncomfortable to get it done. I'll
0: add to that a little bit because I think that's a piece of this conversation too that and I'm working on a book and so this is a little piece of the book that I'm working on right now is I think that a lot of people walk around conflating discomfort and danger. Yep. It's not, it is not dangerous to be uncomfortable like it is not that people walk around feeling like discomfort is an attack and it's a dangerous place to be but actually discomfort is the only place where we ever experience growth and i think about like a really benign example like when you get a new phone there is a period of discomfort. I don't know where the buttons are. I don't know how to. I need to download my apps, like all the things. And it's not comfortable. I don't know what I'm doing. But the more I like sit with that discomfort and go, okay, I'm learning this as I go along, the easier it is to use that phone. And then all of a sudden it's second nature, right? And I think the same thing is true about when we're having these conversations about equity or when we're doing the uncomfortable work of like, wow, I was taught something that was not right. Like this really uncomfortable to think about that I wasn't taught correctly. But am I going to like be defensive with that discomfort and go like oh this is dangerous i can't be there i can't be there or do i sit with it figure out how to transform it and make it so that the students that come after me and the people who come after me have it better like we shouldn't want better for the people who come after us we shouldn't want it to be the same as what we had and i think it's a really deep i don't know what to call it like the word that's coming in my head is sickness that like we want people to like suffer the way we've suffered we shouldn't want that we absolutely shouldn't want that that is so dehumanizing We should want better for every single student who is in our care in the school system.
2: Can I say about what you said about conflating the danger and the uncomfortability? I think the danger is inherent inside that they kind of have to face themselves a little bit in that uncomfortability. The danger is a test of my own values. Can I meet that uncomfortability and push through it to be able to say there's something better on the other side? So I think so many people are not willing to take that step or to act in a certain way it does become a little bit of an impediment. I have just a general question I'd love to ask both of you. What do you think about, even though you might not have policy in place or something that you're following, what do you think about like grassroots efforts to do equitable work outside of the context of perhaps having an overreaching policy? Because the way I see it is you could be waiting a long time for policy to be enacted, to be approved, to be demonstrated, trained even. In that time, it seems like you should do some work in between there, I'm not sure what that is. Or I'd love to hear what you think about that.
3: So as far as the policy part, and if you remember, I said the policy is five years old. I've been up there since 2012. So there was a lot of front-loading to that. First year, quote-unquote, comfortable with the data. We had to start offering equity institutes. We had to start having community conversations, community conversations in which we would have someone like Carolyn Joel Cabrera-King, I hope I said that right, come and do training with the teachers and then later on that night meeting at the Urban League and doing training in the community and then the next day meeting at mom and pop stop or corner church if you will and having that exact same PD or school, community, grassroots organization, the exact same training. This all happened before the policy. So there is some work that has to happen inside of the system to move the work forward. The policy is actually the youngest but biggest effort To the equity work we're doing. However, there was a lot of stuff that we had to put in there. We wanted to season the meat as opposed to just cook it. So we had to do a lot of seasoning. I would definitely recommend that. A district that can jump right out. These districts, in my opinion, and I say this openly, these districts that are just throwing out policies without doing some of the other work, had a single conversation about anything. They literally just threw out a policy just about the same way they throw out mission statements, just to say they have one.
0: I'll add to that conversation because that's such a good question. And it sounds like in the work that y'all did, Dr. Marshall, it sounds like community organizing work to me. So I have like organizing background as well. Like you yes. have to kind of get people on board before you put the thing in front of them so that you know, like mm-hmm. you've already touched the masses, like you've reached people. This quote, I found who said it. I didn't know who said it. So I Googled it right now. But this somebody named Rob Hopkins said, if we wait for the government, it will be too late if we act as individuals it will be too little but if we act as communities it might just be enough just in time. and so like to that question Ernesto like I think about yes we need the policy yes we need the individual work but in between those two things like we have to be in collaboration with one another we have to be learning from one another that's how we start to move things
1: along so I'm wondering, how does those grass, how does that grassroots effort start? What is it that you do first? What's the first step of that? Just educate? Is it something like this, like you're educating the people about what equity is, and yes. then from there, what do you go from there?
3: I'll be honest. The reason I think some of the success in Jefferson County has been what it is. I'm born and raised here, so my network personally was already big enough to reach out to certain people. So I can go to the community in which I grew up and say now I'm inside, but I also want to have the outside pushing in. I want to be very clear, and this is for you, Candidate James, nothing moves forward without external pressure. The system in and of itself, even if the people want to change, the system is so thoroughly entrenched, it will take someone that's in the system but can work outside of it to push it in. So an equity policy got approved because the community pushed in after I went out and brought them in. The two schools, we have a school, not a charter school, targeted for African-American males, the WB the Boys Academy. All public dollars got approved after the chief equity officer went outside, had community conversations and meetings, met with people and said, let's do it. Then they came and brought pressure. The one for the girls, Grace James Academy. So there is a very important part of this constellation called school that we forget is community and community has to be informed and community has to be empowered. But community has to trust. So whatever John Marshall is known to do, it's really because community came in, grandmama and them came in, the fraternities came in, mega church and minor church came in and really helped move the work forward. LGBTQIA community came in and said, this is what we want. It it will not move if you just sit within the public school system because the public school system is two, three, four hundred years old and is almost immobile from its own cogs. You can't change the cogs of a school system from the cogs that are already built into it.
1: You have to make sure that you have the right people in the school system to do, that's willing to do
3: the work, correct? Look here, Nancy, right. And I tell equity officers all the time, (laughs) (laughs) you can't do this job if you're scared to lose this job. Because as we talk about danger, let's be honest, it is dangerous. Parents are jumping on coaches for basketball. What do you think they're doing to us as we start talking about this? So there is some danger to it, but the people that are uncomfortable, they feel like it's dangerous because they have to change the danger that we are inflict or that we are possible privy to is literal danger. So, yeah, you can't do this job if you're scared to lose this job. A lot of these districts and I say this all the time, probably while I'm not a superintendent, which is a lot of these districts are throwing up equity officers and they're mascots at best. And I say that openly mascots at best in the sense that it's to maintain a status quo as opposed to move forward and uplift an entire school system.
1: Damn, I sound like Ann Arbor, right. <laughs> I hate to say it. One of the things I love Ann Arbor and I love the opportunities and stuff, but it's just way too many optics. and I'm just really ready to do the actual work and not just say we're awesome, but to actually be awesome. I say that all the time, but people have to be willing to do the push actually do the work and be honest. But yeah, we're not there yet. Okay guys, we have about 10 minutes left. Is there anything, I know it's so much, I would love to continue this conversation. Is there anything that you think that we need to know or tips or
2: what is it that you wanna make sure that we know? I have a question, I have another question, I have a question, sorry. Okay. I have a question about before we went live and we talked a little bit about the distribution of, of funds basically and how that was real allocated One thing that I find is that in our school system, the range from one school to perhaps a total title one school, the opportunities that are available to students, that has nothing to do with the district. We all know that public system is somewhat broken, obviously. It's archaic almost. And so what happens in a lot of times is that PTAs and PTOs will supplement funding to these spaces. And so what I find in our district is that some spaces get supplemented a whole bunch and then other schools perhaps don't get supplemented at all, which creates an equitable experience for students. A simple example is one place will get a huge playground and perhaps another place gets a small one. One gets to go, I don't know, on a really great trip at an end of year activity, and the other one gets to go outside on the playground and have a picnic. And so while that really has everything to do with school, that's not really something that's easily policed i'm wondering about how you might have addressed some of that dr marshall or was that part of the community conversations beforehand
3: or does that still exist in the district i'm just curious good question and remember in the policy it says central office commitment and i'll say this again candidate james this is for any superintendent show me your budget i'll show you your values that's for any principal show me your budget and i'll show you your values how do we <laughs> how do we budget for something if we say we want all kids see so you getting me on so much. we can't even get equality right which is easy if east end has a state of the art playground west end should have it regardless of demographics but when we start talking about the reallocation of funds we are saying that we want students to have what they need in order to move the work forward so as we reallocate funds or we reallocate talent or we reallocate whatever it may be, the conversation must stop with those that are making decisions and are responsible for the reallocation of whatever it is. So we have to make sure when we start talking about equity, that we are in fact brave enough to reallocate whatever it is that we, if it's playgrounds for you, then we want all playgrounds to be state of the art. Then we need those playgrounds to be state of the art for everyone. If it is libraries that are culturally responsive and have a swath of different authors, we want that and we need it for all. It should not be up to, and this is where public schools, we should not ask the parent that can't even afford to do the canned food drive to bring in the canned food in order for this child to be able to do something. We should not ask parents that are barely or below the poverty line to create, to fundraise, to put a swing set somewhere when they don't have one in their own backyard. That is a systemic problem that takes the onus off of us when we should be owning that. A parent should not have to be responsible for the playground of a school when our system is built in order to do, we could do that right. If in a simple way I'm saying it, but I want us to hear this and we all know this. Show me your budget and I'll show you your values. Period.
1: So I, I threw out that. I'm a full believer in that. Show me your budget. I'll show you what's important. Despite what you're saying It's about what you're doing. to kind of illustrate an equities, the fundraising. Someone told me that one school was, able to raise $12,000 and another school raised $96,000 in one year. And of course, that means that someone's having a hell of a lot better experience than others, right? It's real when you talk about how we're trying to get our kids, that some kids just don't have the resources, be it financial, be it the tutors, be it whatever, and that we kind of have a responsibility to I would think it's a human thing to do, the godly thing to do, the love-based thing to do is to try to make sure that everybody has what they need to take care of what they need to be done. Do you have anything to say, Carol? Any closing things to say?
0: Thank you for this conversation. Like, I feel like I was learning a lot about policy and, like, things that could happen from up here because I work, like... I work at the opposite end of that. And I think something that I'm taking away from that is we need both and we need both happening all the time. We need things happening on the ground in the classroom and we need things happening in policy in order for real equity to emerge. Like it has to both be happening constantly. Otherwise, it's going to be like a top down thing that people aren't going to listen to or it's going to be a bottom up thing that doesn't have any power. So we need both things happening always in order to actually get to equitable outcomes for students. I think that's like my takeaway from this conversation. And I feel like I'm thinking a lot of things right now and I'm really grateful to have
2: been part of it. I wanna say thanks to both of you too for really livening our conversation. And for me also getting ways to think about how change could actually happen. And Dr. Marshall, thanks for sharing how you did it. And I definitely see the outreach of the community um, really supporting you and wanting it. That's really the thing. The community's got to want it. And sometimes I just generally think for them to want it, they got to see it a little bit for them to want it. And unless you do something, they'll never see it. Yeah, that's
1: it. Well, that sounds kind
2: of like a conundrum because you say that
1: they have to see it to be able to want it. And then if they don't see it, that they won't be able to want it or even just waiting for everyone to want it. Sometimes I think about like the
2: civil rights movement, right? Nobody wanted that.
1: You know what a lot I mean? of but people wanted it they just had them. to
2: wait a long long time and some are still waiting
1: well according to the history that i've learned of course it's not complete because they don't really glorify the white people that helped us or uplift that the whole effort that it really took the community effort that it took But well, i'm saying that when we talk about equity if we wait for people to be ready then they will never be ready we have to remember in ann arbor they had to sue in 1985 to desegregate the schools that was 1985. So it has to be a little bit more than just waiting to people are comfortable and kind of just pushing it because this is what's right. And you've got to just kind of get out there and do what's right, even when it is uncomfortable, even when it's hard. So
3: may I add this part, too, about waiting and I'm actually going to be talking to a district in New York about this. And they're literally stuck on this. We got to wait to get everybody along. And it's a simple question. What if Harriet waited for everybody to come with her?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You can't wait for everybody. And this notion of let's meet people where they are is only good if after you meet them, they're ready to move. Because if we go back, if we go back and meet people where they are and we stay there, that is maintaining what we have. So we go to the tree line and say this is the way it is going to be hard. Some of us are not going to make it. They are going to hound us and chase us. But those that want to risk this and take it because we know it's the right thing. Let's go. But the whole waiting for everybody to be comfortable is a problem in and of itself. And nowhere in the educational emancipation in emancipation period what, for any group has waiting for everyone ever been a thing. And the notion of meeting people where they are is also sometimes a ploy to meet people where they are and stay there. I'm going to be honest with y'all. Everybody shouldn't be coming with us. Some people need to be left behind because it takes a level of fed upness and impatience bravery and unknowing, all of us are still learning. I am still learning about some of the inequities, but I am ready to move and I'm ready to move with those that want to. Those that want to stay, I will come and court you a couple of times, but we got to keep going. We ain't got time to be waiting. So be very leery of those that say meet people where they are, if there's no intent to move after we go back into danger and have to sit there,
1: I love that. Can I get standing ovation? <laughs> I mean,
0: right? Oh God, I mean, yes.
1: I love that. So, in all things, so I just, as a candidate and as a human, as a parent and all that stuff, I have to be completely honest that. As a candidate, this is something that I really want to work on. It's something I really want to push, and I know it's not something that works every day. I I know this is not something that's going to happen overnight, and I also know that it's not going to be something that's going to happen like in one year. It's something that we're going to have to constantly work on, but this is something that is very, very important. I feel it's very, very important for our babies, especially with us being in a global economic system. It is so important. That all our children have an opportunity to thrive. It is so important that our children have as much information, as many tools in their toolbox as possible as they walk up out of our schools. And for our schools in particular, for us to have the optics of being awesome, how messed up is it when our children go out there and they're not? It's not about our optics. It's about our actual children and the results and all the children that will help along the way. So i want to thank you guys for coming i am so appreciative and thank you so much for this conversation and i'm going to keep in contact with you dr marshall because i'm going to be picking your brain and picking your brain so i'm going to be slightly annoying
3: sure no problem let's do it i'll be doing the same with you all let me know if there's anything i can do and y'all will be hearing from me as well
1: thank you very much so blessings and light to everyone thank you for joining us Those that are seeing it in the free look over. So thank you for that as well. And just have a blessed night, guys. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to The Intersection, Spirituality and Social Justice. We hope this podcast made you think and feel and that you carry that with you into the conversations you have in your own life. We also know that our conversation is incomplete without you. We would love to keep in touch. Follow us on Instagram at the period intersection period podcast and find our individual Instagrams in the show notes. We can't wait to hear from you.